Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. I'm Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanyap. That's Creole for something extra. It's no secret, I love wine. But how I like wine is nothing compared to the way Bianca Bosker loves wine. Bosker spent 18 months sampling her way through a lot of vino to earn one of the top titles in the wine world. Now she's telling all in a new book. Bosker's book, Cork Dork, a wine-fueled adventure among the obsessive sommeliers, big bottle hunters, and rogue scientists who taught me to live for taste, is our July selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. Author Bianca Bosker joins me here in studio. Welcome. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Also joining us for this conversation, Under the Radar's wine guru, Jonathan Alsup. Jonathan is the founder and director of the Boston Wine School. Hello, Jonathan. Hello, Callie. Love the book. Let's start there. Thank you. It was so well written and very interesting. Just a fun kind of part memoir, part science, part thrill of the adventure. So everything that your title suggests. You were the former executive tech editor for Huffington Post. You quit your job to try to learn all about wine. So I want you to define what cork dork really means and the brief history of how you got to be one. Well, Cork Dork, first of all, is not just a book title. It's the restaurant industry's nickname for the most passionate, obsessive, and knowledgeable wine lovers among them. It was also what I decided I wanted to try and become. And as you alluded to, this was rather out of character for me. So I should say that when I started, I was in no way a wine connoisseur. You know, I think Jonathan probably spent his weekends selecting between wines from Burgundy, Bordeaux. I'd spend my weekends choosing between wines from a bottle and a box. For me, though, as tech editor, it was funny because at that point in my life, I was doing most things via screens, and my wine epiphany happened really on YouTube, where I first came into contact with how extreme these cork dorks were. You know, I think we think of wine as being this thing of pleasure, and they put themselves through a stunning amount of pain in the name of this fermented grape juice. You know, they lick rocks to train their palates, divorce spouses to spend more time studying vineyard soil types. They hire voice coaches, memory coaches, take dance lessons, to, you know, move more gracefully, all these things. And I ultimately, you know, I wanted to know why. I mean, what was the big deal about wine? And could I experience the sort of magic of a bottle, the stories that lurk in taste and smell? And so I basically said, you know, bring on the pain. I am ready. So I quit my job and basically handed my life over to a bunch of these cork dorks. And it was a radical shift. I mean, started drinking quite a bit on weekday mornings, which was, I should say, a change from my normal routine. (laughs) Before Jonathan weighs in, I want to get people listening to a bit of the book. And this is just as you're starting your journey. This is on page 38, where you are just like, you know, what's the big deal? Let me let me join a group of people who do this kind of painful tasting, painfully particular kind of tasting, I should say. So... (laughs) Imagine we are sitting in front of a flight of wines, and all you can see is a glass with a little uh, wine in it. 
I picked up my glass and stuck my nose into it. Dana, one of the sommeliers, was still inspecting the color, so I took my nose out and examined the liquid. On the spectrum of red or white, this was a white wine. So far, so confident, I thought. Wrong. Pale gold with some slight rim variation at the meniscus, flecks of gold and green. It's star bright, no signs of gas or sediment, and viscosity is moderate plus, Dana said in a low monotone, speaking as quickly as he could. So white wasn't quite what they were going for. I sniffed. It smelled, I hated to say it, like wine. You're a writer. You can do better than that, I chided myself. I sniffed harder and lifted the glass closer to my face. Wine dribbled into my nostrils, down my chin, and onto my lap. I dabbed at my face with a page from my notebook. I sniffed again. Maybe one could say apple? Something sweet? Yes, apple and sweet, I decided. A flicker of doubt. Could sweetness be smelled? That's my guest, Bianca Bosker, and she's reading from her book, Cork Dork, a wine-fueled adventure among the obsessive sommeliers, big bottle hunters, and rogue scientists who taught me to live for taste. How did you talk yourself into so many situations with very little experience at the beginning of this journey? So I said two things. One is, there's a great New Yorker writer named Lillian Ross who... And one of her books basically says, you know, I didn't want to write about anyone who didn't want me to write about them. And that's something that I really think about in my own writing, which is I embrace subjects who want me to be there, who are happy to have me help share their story. It's a really two-way relationship, right? I think that for a lot of times... I think you kind of have to ask the people why they were okay with me being there. But I have a feeling that it was probably, you know, I was interested in telling their story and they were interested in having their story told. As someone that works as a journalist, I have really firm ethical standards that I live by. So there's, I um, paid my way own, own way for everything. I talk about it in the book. There's one instance, this insane wine orgy collector back and all, where essentially I got in because I was going to Basically, I got a press pass. Um, otherwise, it's $1,500 a person. Mm. I can't have pay that. <laughs> um, and essentially, you know, they were happy to have a journalist there to cover the event and give them some publicity. And I was happy to go there and have that experience. So, Jonathan, now I would have thought you would be pretty much a cork <laughs> dork, <laughs> absence the sommelier title. Uh, you're all into wine. You could say that. Um, <laughs> so I, how did this book read for you? I'll tell you, I cannot <laughs> say enough good things about this book. First of all, this book made me so thirsty and so hungry as I read through all of this tasting and all of the different foods. It just, it really got me hooked. And one of the great things about this book is that it is about, just in my opinion, it is about more than wine. There's nothing worse than a wine book that's about wine. There's, there's no more boring, no more boring, useless book in the world. And what I love about this book is it's just about so much more than that. I mean, if I can get uh, quasi-amateur political here, mm. part of it is a commentary on conservatism. Mm. I mean, these young psalms, as, as wild and crazy and out there as they are, their world is about conserving wine and protecting mm. wine and getting the right wine to the right people who are going to appreciate it. So I feel like part of it's a conservatism, a modern conservatism narrative. Um, and also a lot of it is about what it's like to be in the echo chamber. 
Yeah. Um, not yeah. a political echo chamber here, but like a taste echo chamber where people are saying things to themselves like, wow, two seventy five a bottle. That's a great bargain. <laughs> yeah. or, we don't or mean two dollars so, and or that's, so, or that's so cheap. You know, yeah. uh, you know, two hundred dollars a bottle, eighty dollars a bottle. You know, people say that they actually mean it. Yes. And it's really only in that echo chamber where that kind of thing starts to happen. So that's one of the things I really liked about it was that other depth, that other uh, level of so what So let me this pick up a little about. bit about what you just said and say this. You were, in the end, I realize it is about the tasting and the appreciating of wine, but it's as much about what Jonathan said, the appreciating of the sensory perceptions. Absolutely. You spent a great deal of time with scientists asking, what is smell about? How can we isolate smell to appreciate wine? Talk about that a little bit, if you would. Absolutely. That was a huge part of it for me, as I think when I set out, you know, I was very curious about wine, but I also was skeptical. I mean, I hadn't felt my spirit moved by a glass of grape juice. And, you know, I think Jonathan's point about the echo chamber, I was really conscious of wanting to pull back the curtain on parts of the wine world that hadn't been explored. So, yes, the soul, the fine wines, the collectors, but also the science of it. And a big part of that for me was to figure out what was BS and what wasn't. And there is a lot of BS. But what I will say is when you clear that away, you are left with these precious truths that can tell us so much and guide us far beyond the table. And to me, one of the most precious of them is what I learned about the senses. So I think that, you know, most of us, when you think about it, really have a tendency to ignore two of our five senses, taste and smell. Aristotle and Plato decided way back when these don't matter, they are animalistic, forget about them. And more than I think a lot of us realize, we've really we've believed that. that. That's yeah. right. And that's I'm right. not a great listener, so I think that's three. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> but I think that with what's so interesting about this world of sommeliers and wine is that they flip that logic on the, he- on the head and they say, you know, flavor can deliver the same beauty as in art or poetry. And first of all, so I spent a lot of time with not only with sommeliers, but also with sensory scientists, with neuroscientists. I got my own brain scanned to see how I'd change at the end of all of this. And what we learn is that, first of all, any of us can hone our senses. You don't have to be born a bloodhound. And secondly, why it matters to do so. And what you see when you look at people that have gone through this training is that things, that these stimulations that we would have ignored actually begin to light up parts of our brain associated with memory, with reasoning, with executive function, and actually turn into knowledge, into experience. And so I came out of this experience not just spending a little more on wine than I used to or beginning to savor why, you know, wet dirt could be a good thing in a glass of wine to smell, but also what I would describe as sensefulness, which is this Mm. mindset that to me is about tuning into our senses in order to make sense of the world. And I think a lot of us don't bother to do that. I mean, we spend all this time and money on finding things that taste better and never learn to taste well. Mm. And as a result, I think we don't learn to really stay true to our own felt experience of something. You know, something is delicious because it's expensive, not because we felt the wonder in those flavors. So Jonathan Alsup of the Boston Wine School and our wine guru has poured something. And yes. while he's pouring, I want to just remind people oh. that I'm Callie Crossley and you're listening to Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And my guests are author Bianca Bosker. You just heard her. And she has written a book called Cork Dork with a long other title, but we're not going to say it right now. <laughs> um, and it's about her journey, really becoming, moving from an amateur wine person like myself to 
a master sommelier and all the testing and all of the knowledge that she had to acquire along the way to achieve that title. Uh, certified sommelier. Certified. But I, That's but I can correct. decant with a license. So. <laughs> certified master sommelier. <laughs> Let me just say that. Jonathan, tell us what this wine is, yes. and then I'm going to come back to So Bianca. I brought uh, white wine. You know, it's, this is a grape called Sauvignon Gris. Everybody's had Sauvignon Blanc. People are maybe a little past Sauvignon Blanc saying, hey, what's next? This is Sauvignon Gris. Gris in French means gray, mm-hmm. and it's a white wine. But if you were to see the skin of it, the skin is kind of striped or splotchy. You know, it's not white and it's not black. It's, it's, in, it's, between. it's in between. So it's Sauvignon Gris. So I'm going to stop is, you right there. Yep. Because I want to see the skills of one Bianca Bosco <laughs> to tell me what she smells and yeah, tastes in it. this wine. <laughs> I was the first thing I got out of this was a ton of peach. It also has like a little bit of something funky as like a, mm-hmm. se- a secondary mm-hmm. smell to it. So yeah. this is also a Chilean, right? Chilean, right. yeah. Yep. What I will mm. say is that I think the key part, and I, you probably talk about this in your classes, is I think a lot of us just skip to the drinking part of the wine. <laughs> and yes. when you think about it, we've got five tastes that we can perceive. I saw you, Callie. Callie, she's, she's a I smelled and drank. I did smell it. It's good. Is, uh, we can perceive five different tastes, but scientists estimate that we can perceive about a trillion different odors. So really the complexity mm. and nuance and richness of a wine, its story is... And just spend some time with it. You know, you're absolutely right. We're a very fast drinking culture. We're a very, I mean, look, a gulping, look, not look, a sipping. Look, look at our world of right. fast yeah. food. Yeah. You know, we're very, everything's very speeded up. And if you can just slow down a little bit, that's the main thing. But another thing I loved about the book was how all of the different people who were getting into the Psalm world were getting into it from such different directions. Mm, yeah. You know, yours intentionally, journalistically. And I loved the story of Annie, yeah. of mm-hmm. Annie, the woman who, she worked at a country club somewhere yeah. And, yeah. and discovered that she was a psalm and discovered that psalms made, you know, three times what she was paid. Right. You know, right. and she became a psalm by kind of waking up one day and, and finding herself. You know, it's just such a great thing about the wine world is that you can get into it from so many different angles. And I have to say, the love of it came through. I mean, I know you have the obsessive thing in your title, and that is true, but there was so much appreciation for it, and to watch you grow over the book for a fine appreciation for what you're smelling and tasting, and that a big part of being a sommelier is to get other folks like myself to come out of our box and try different things. So here's one question I want to ask, because Jonathan's a big no-wine snobbery, and there are some that feel that maybe you escalated the role of the sommelier in the book to the point that they seem snobbier than they would seem, (laughs) and that we normal people would be afraid of them. I now am inspired to say to them, hey, okay, this is what I think is my flavor profile. Show me something that you think would be a little bit different within the context of what I think I already like. You know? Well, yeah. I mean, I think really what the book does is to demystify the world of sommeliers. And also, I think candidly, sommeliers are not always viewed in the most generous of lights. I think that they still have this stereotype of being the kind of judgy undertaker of the restaurant world who stalks the floor in a dark suit with a scowl and sort of pressures you or makes you feel bad so you spend a little more on wine. 
I had various wine mentors. One of them was a guy named Morgan. Um, oh, he's fabulous. Yeah, who is yeah. just, I mean, his, I thought I had discovered the extremes of nerdery when I worked in tech, but my gosh, he put it on another spectrum <laughs> altogether, but to a way that came back to cool because he just radiated excitement. Look, I was in this world. I mean, I was working in it. I was spending more time with Morgan at various points than I was with my husband. Mm-hmm. Like, we were in deep. And I think that, if anything, what Cork Dork does is to show the way that this world is so often misunderstood. You know, like chefs, we've probed this world of celebrity chefs. They are like the sexy mm-hmm. bad boys in the yep. restaurant world. They've yeah. got flames. They've got fire. And sommeliers deal with a much more delicate and sort of it's a more refined source of passion i mean they have the kind of you you've got flames and fire i've got a cool damp basement yeah right and flashcards um yeah Yeah, but they're but they're also younger than ever before they're more Mm -hmm. female than ever before um which i think is important yeah and i also think what i would say is that I really came at this with an open mind, and I think that there are ways that the book has been controversial in part because it doesn't stick to the typical wine world script. Mm -hmm. I think we hear a lot about the romance, the fairy tale of wine. You know, people throw out words like (laughs) terroir, right? right? And so I think what it exposes is the way that the reality is much messier, much more complicated, and much more interesting. And And how to deal with wine. (laughs) Well, also that uh, I have much more respect. I have to say I have much more respect for them now. I'm not so afraid of them now. Now I I get it. Well, we're in a phase now where it's sort of been like the rise and fall and rise of the sommelier class. Mm. I mean, when we think about, you know, my father's generation is the world of of these high-end scary psalms, and then they sort of went away mm-hmm. in some ways as wine became more maybe democratized. I don't know. I'm making like some gross generalizations. No, because here. you and I have but, talked about but, how but, more yeah. people are drinking. But wine it feels now. like mm-hmm. it feels like the mm-hmm. psalms are coming back now right. in a in a somewhat different form. But you know, addressing the same thing that's out there that people are overwhelmed, people are intimidated, yeah. people spend. $20 on a glass of wine by the glass, which makes the bottle of wine 100 mm-hmm. People do that kind of all the time, yet they don't know where a $100 bottle fits in their right, life. Right, yet right. they spend $100 yeah. a bottle by the glass right. well, I'm so all glad the you time. raised that, Jonathan, because, it, it, because one of the things that uh, you do in your book, Bianca, is to talk about it really examine what is good wine. Mm-hmm. You know, what do we mean by top-tier wine? And I love one of your mentors and, I guess, your employer saying that a wine must be yummy. Yeah. I can go with that. <laughs> I can go with that. Yeah. Yummy, meaning you want to take another sip. Yeah. That's okay yeah, to say that. that was his definition, that, you know, a wine is good if one sip leads to another right. sip. Yeah. And that's not as evident. When you, when you begin to get some of these discriminating skills, you'll find... There are wines that have sort of said everything that you need to hear on that first sip. And there's wines that come back to it. It's an Mm. interesting conversation. So one of the things I did in my book was to go and get this really rare firsthand glimpse at the way that the wines that most of us drink most of the time are really not so much made as engineered. I mean, you think of the flavor scientists Mm -hmm. making sort of Frankenstein Oreos. Not that different for a lot of these entry-level bottles. There's dozens of additives that can go into these wines. They're really made from the consumer backwards with focus groups, sensory scientists, etc. Now, those wines can have their own place, and I've written about that. But going to back to something you said about the confidence, I do think for me that very consciously, you know, when I think about the conversations that I would have with people in the restaurant as a sommelier, all the time people would come in and say, you know, give me a glass of anything. I really can't taste the difference. 
And if I had time, I would pull them aside, pour two glasses of very different wines and say, yes, you can taste the difference. And here's how. Just try it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Just try it. Let's Mm -hmm. talk about it. And that's something that I, it's a conversation that, you know, I could rarely have in a restaurant. And I see the book as a way to have that conversation with, you know, dozens or hundreds or God willing, like thousands of readers. Because instead of telling people what to taste, I think we should tell, show them how mm. to taste. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure, Jonathan, that's something you cover in your classes as well. But I think it's a much more solid foundation for a relationship with wine. Jonathan, what would you want your students that come to the Boston Wine School to take away from Bianca's book? Well, one thing is that you can do this. You can look inside yourself. You know food. You know history. You know geography. You know plants. You know cars. What, what, are, what are all the things you know? All of these things relate to your taste in wine, to your taste in food. And message number one is you can do this. And you can. it's okay to have a choice about what you like. You have to. Yeah, it's not, exactly. not only okay, okay, it's part of your responsibility. Mm-hmm. It's one of the reasons why you're here yeah. is, to have the, <laughs> is to have that preference and and to experience that difference and then have something to say, some reaction, some response, to be able to respond to wine and food. Same question to you then, Bianca. When people read this and they're coming at it from various levels of expertise about wine, or perhaps none, what is the one thing that you want them to take away from the book? It goes back to something that you said at the beginning, which is the way that wine can provide discipline and framework for experiencing life. Because I think there's some people that I've talked to, they're like, well, I don't really like wine or like I don't drink wine. I don't know if your book's for me. And I'm like, you know, it's not really just about wine. I mean, it's about obsession. It's about the senses. It's about the history of restaurants. But more fundamentally, going back to this idea of sensefulness, I just think that so many of us settle for what I would describe as secondhand sensing, like what I described before, Mm. where something is good because it's single origin something something coffee pooped out by a monkey and it's twelve dollars a cup what wine can begin to show us when you combine the traditions but also the science very critically is the way that we can be more honest to what we're actually feeling and i think draw our own judgments and conclusions rather than taking someone else's word for something. And for me, the mindset that I learned through blind tasting, I now apply that idea of sensibleness when I'm reading a book, when I'm hearing music, when I'm looking at a painting, when I'm going for a walk, drive my husband crazy. I make him stop at every flowering bush in Central (laughs) Park so I can stick my nose into it. And I just have a greater appreciation for the information that before I completely neglected. Because these smells, these tastes, these senses, they're not the animalistic part of us. They reveal really the heartbeat and the richness of the places that we live in. So I want to thank you both. Bianca Bosker is the author of Cork Dork, a wine-fueled adventure among the obsessive sommeliers, big bottle hunters, and rogue scientists who taught me to live for taste. The book is available in stores and online now. And Jonathan Alsop is the founder and executive director of the Boston Wine School. He is also Under the Radar's wine guru. Well, that's it for this edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Join us next Sunday at 6 p.m. for the stories you may have missed. In the meantime, you can find our show and links to stories we discussed today on the web at news.wgbh.org slash UTR. Listen to our show on the WGBH app and take UTR with you. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. 
please write to us at undertheradar at wgbh.org. Our engineer is Doug Sugars. Andrea Aswaye is our producer. Under the Radar is a production of WGBH.